If they think about it at all, most people think that black people who migrated to California moved into booming cities. Many times, the assumption is that black people rejected agricultural labor because of its association with slavery and sharecropping. But African Americans are not strangers to rural California. The culture of cultivating the earth runs deep. For generations, black settlers have shaped life in agricultural areas of California, from as far north as Siskiyou County to Imperial County in the south. Black people have been farming and working the land since the gold rush era. In fact, black folks were in California long before it became a U.S. state. Take the 18th century settlers who were known as pobladores that founded the present day city of Los Angeles. Half of them were of African descent. And so there's this long history of African-Americans that a lot of people don't know. So whether it's the history of occupation and theft of native lands or the history of cultivation of lands, black people are often excluded from these stories. And that's a problem. Because it doesn't really tell the truth about African-Americans in California, and it doesn't tell the truth about California. Truths that, in many ways, have tested the promise of the California dream. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the first episode in our We Are Not Strangers Here series, This series, which draws its name from writer Ravi Howard, highlights hidden histories of African-Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. This six-part series is also connected to a traveling exhibit with the same name. The exhibit was originally designed to travel throughout California. We printed big, beautiful banners full of all kinds of photos from the archives that accompany the stories we're telling. But then the pandemic happened. And so now, we're digitally reconceiving the We Are Not Strangers Here exhibit so that people can still enjoy it even during the pandemic. It's not up yet, but we're working on it. Please check out www.agroots.org for updates. A lot of what we understand about California comes from iconic stories about hardy pioneers that panned for gold or settled land, folks who manipulated waterways, grew crops, created communities, and forged innovations that continue to define the Golden State. These are important stories, and how we tell them is just as important. So much so that that's the kind of cultural knowledge I studied when earning my doctorate degree, and what I continue to examine at UC San Diego. In other words, I research how the history of the American West gets made and remade in places like California. So this series and the exhibit that accompanies it are one way we're reincorporating Black stories into California's historical narrative. And this is a subject that's also personal to me as a Black American. One of my favorite family photos is of my great-great-grandfather, Robert Fuller. In it, He's standing in front of his barbershop around Waco, Texas in the 1870s. He's got a big handlebar mustache across his face, and you can also see a saloon next door with all these black and brown cowboys gathered in its doorway. It's a reflection of what the area historically looked like at the time. This mingling of cultures in the American West is something that still fascinates me as a California native, where branches of my family have been since the 1930s. 
Yet, when you look closely at the iconic stories that shape how we view California history, you notice two things. Many of these stories take place in rural areas, and many of them ignore the long-standing presence of black settlers, which means that histories of California's rural communities are incomplete without acknowledging African Americans. So, as we'll soon discover, black farmers and ranchers in California have been here from the start, and in many ways, their stories are bound by a common thread, the persistent belief in and pursuit of the California dream by black people, even in the face of systemic inequity. In order to share these stories of rural black settlers in California, we worked with public historian Susan Anderson, who's our primary history advisor for the We Are Not Strangers Here project. For decades, she's researched black history in California. These assumptions that exist that African-Americans somehow don't have anything to do in a place like California, that they don't have anything to do with the land or the history of the land. That's just wrong. As the history curator and program manager of the California African-American Museum, Anderson's working to bring these settler stories to their rightful place in official state history. If we're looking at California from 1850 to 1900, the first 50 years of statehood, those accounts don't include the African-American presence by and large in rural California. It's a reflection of the period that simply doesn't align with actual documentation of the time. If you go back and read newspapers or you read court documents or primary source materials from those times, you will find Black people in the record because they lived in rural California. And they haven't just existed there. They were noted by their neighbors and they were part of their communities. Many Black Californians actively built their communities, opening schools, working the land, and making sure citizens had equal rights. So you find them when you go back into history, but that that history is not brought into the present. It's a critical oversight because stories of Black farmers, ranchers, and rural residents are key pieces of California heritage. In other words, learning about their long presence doesn't just fill an important historical gap. Their stories also help challenge myths about early California and create new narratives about freedom, self-governance, and civic culture. In fact, Anderson's own ancestors were among the various black settlers that made their way to the state in the 19th century. I'm third generation, so my great-grandparents on my mother's side arrived in California as young people in the 1890s. I mean, that's not that early compared to a lot of people. Some black families came even earlier and still call California home. Michelle Thompson, another descendant of a 19th century settler, spoke to me by phone from her home in Walnut Creek. For years, she's dedicated herself to preserving her family history. My name is Michelle Thompson. I am the direct descendant of Alvin Coffey, and I am his great-great-granddaughter. Our family was established in California as a result of Alvin's participation in the California Gold Rush, both as a 
slave and as a slave earning his freedom. Like many African Americans who arrived in California in 1849, Michelle's great-great-grandfather was one of the thousands of people from around the world that rushed into the Northern California gold fields. However, unlike many settlers, and especially black settlers, Alvin Coffey left behind a first-hand account of his overland gold rush journey. They were busy living their lives. They weren't busy documenting their lives. That's John Hogan, education and gallery manager of the Society of California Pioneers in San Francisco, which now holds some of Alvin Coffey's papers. Hogan says that normally, curators and scholars have to cobble together indirect sources in order to get a better sense of the lives of these early pioneers. Things like marriage licenses, letters that they received, letters out from the gold rush, of course, don't stay in California. Families who kept them are in Boston or New York or whatever, so the first-hand experience are often not here. So Coffee's account? It's a historical jackpot. First of all, it's still rare to have testimonies from these overland journeys during this time. That's Susan Anderson again. But to have the voice of an African-American who traveled overland to come to California during the gold rush is even more unusual. And what a story it is. The California gold rush is an iconic tale. At the end of 1848, gold was discovered near Sutter's Mill outside modern day Sacramento. The next year, in 1849, almost 90,000 fortune seekers flocked west. They're still remembered today as the 49ers. It speaks to the fervor of gold fever that everyone in the country thought California was the place to get rich. So Alvin Coffey um, came to California as part of the gold rush in 1849, but he came as a slave. Some slaveholders sent enslaved people to mine for gold in California on their behalf. He was a slave in Kentucky, and his owner said, well, you know, if everyone's making money out there, Alvin, you can go out to California, make $1,000, send it back to me, and you will be a free man. He worked very hard, and he made $1,000, and he sent it back to Kentucky. And he gets a letter in return for that. But it actually wasn't that simple. Alvin Coffey actually made the journey back and forth from Northern California to Missouri three times. And that's a remarkable thing because this was a journey that took six months over land. It was even more remarkable given Coffey's status as an enslaved person. Most African-Americans that made their way to California during the gold rush were free. California's constitution even stated that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, unless punishment of a crime, shall ever be tolerated. However, archives across the state contain evidence that slavery was practiced out in the open. White Southerners who came to California brought hundreds of enslaved black people with them. These enslaved individuals weren't only forced to work in gold mines, they were also hired out for cooking, serving, or other work. Sometimes, huge fortunes were built on the backs of this free labor. So Alvin was among those attempting to start a new life while still negotiating the vulnerability of bondage. Alvin was 26 when he made his first trip to California. But his story starts in Kentucky, where he was born enslaved in 1822. As a boy, he was sold to a new owner who brought him to St. Louis, Missouri, where he was sold again to Dr. William H. Bassett. It's also where he'd eventually meet and marry Mahela Tyndall, who was also enslaved. Her owner, 
who was also her first cousin, was a relative of Coffee's owner, Dr. Bassett. A year into the gold rush, Dr. Bassett decided to join the fray, but he was chronically ill, so he decided to bring Alvin along. They made a bargain that Alvin Coffee would uh, be able to buy his uh, freedom uh, with money he earned from the diggings, from the gold diggings when they got to California. With Coffee's wife, Mahela, weeks away from delivering their fourth child, Coffee and Bassett left St. Joseph at noon on May 5, 1849, along with nearly 80 other men and 20 wagons. Alvin later described the scene in his writings. He wrote that, quote, a crowd of neighbors drove through the mud and the rain to see them off. But like many overland journeys of the time, it was a perilous trip and hard work. It's his job to watch the oxen, and sometimes he drove one of the wagons. The wagon train faced five months of thunder and lightning, dust storms, scorching heat and rain. Roads were muddy and wagon wheels cracked. Firewood was hard to come by. Many of the oxen died from exhaustion and starvation, which drove some of the men to join other wagons and abandon provisions right there on the trail. The wagon train snaked through present-day Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and Nevada. It forded fast-moving streams, fought with Native Americans defending their lands, and fled a cholera outbreak. Many also got sick with bad colds and coughs, which back then could be deadly. Another 49er in their party, Titus Hale, noted Alvin's various contributions in his own diary. He mentions Coffee's suggestion that they flee the surge of cholera, how he shouldered his rifle to defend the wagon train, and once even jumped into the icy Missouri River to save another traveler from drowning. The thing is, Alvin's tenacity makes perfect sense. Consider the stakes. He wasn't heading west to California to get rich quick. He was traveling for freedom and the eventual freedom of his wife and children. The wagons reached Nevada by early August. Of their original 20 wagons, only six were left. Dr. Bassett was gravely ill when almost a month later, they eventually limped into California. There, they made their way to the mines of Reading Springs, which is near the present-day community of Shasta. Of their original 80 men in their party, only eight to 10 made it to this mining camp. Alvin and the still ailing Dr. Bassett were among them. Here's Michelle Thompson, Coffee's great-great-granddaughter again. Dr. Bassett had gotten sick on the journey and Alvin essentially did all the work when they got to California. And mining was only part of that work. Given the deal he made with Dr. Bassett to purchase his freedom, Alvin spent his evenings washing and ironing clothes for other miners or repairing their shoes, which earned him $616 in gold dust. Alvin also worked as a laborer in Fremont and harvested hay in Sacramento, where he made $2,000. But all of his earnings went to Bassett, along with the 5000 in gold that Coffee mined for him. Then, a little over a year after arriving in California, Coffee and Dr. Bassett left for home. When they went back, they went by ship, which went to New Orleans. Coffee and Bassett most likely took a common steamership route from San Francisco to Panama, and traveled across the country's isthmus to the Caribbean Sea, and there they booked passage on another ship bound for Louisiana, a trip that in total could take up to three months and was supposed to mark the last leg of Alvin's journey towards freedom. When they got to New Orleans, Bassett sent coffee to the city's mint to convert their gold dust to coins. But when Alvin returned with the money and handed it over to Bassett... This man 
um, reneged on his promise. And when Alvin objected, he threatened to sell coffee in Louisiana, which was the biggest slave market in the country. In the end, Bassett waited until their return to St. Louis. There, he decided he was going to sell Alvin. I guess Alvin had learned a few things about being independent, working hard for your own labor. Bassett claimed that coffee was a, quote, bad influence on his slaves. So he sold coffee to his relative, Mary Tyndall, who owned Alvin's wife, Mahela, and their children. Coffee's price? $1,000. It was a brutal setback, but eventually, Alvin was able to convince his new owners, the Tyndall family, to allow him to once again make the trip to California. He promised them that he could earn the $1,000 needed to purchase his freedom. So Alvin made the long journey once again. He went back to Shasta County and started digging for gold. He also ran a laundry in Sacramento. He even made money at the Page and Bacon Bank in San Francisco, which was failing. He didn't have an account there, but he made money by queuing up and selling his place in line to account holders withdrawing their funds. Over time, he was able to save $1,000. And this time, he consulted with an attorney. Then he sent word to Missouri that he was ready to send his gold, but he needed to get his emancipation papers first. On July 14, 1856, Alvin's 34th birthday, the deed of emancipation of Alvin A. Coffey was filed in a St. Louis County, Missouri court. And we actually are lucky enough to have that letter in our archive. Um, it's referred to as his manumission paper. And basically, it's a letter from his owner at the time who said, you sent us this $1,000 and you are now free. It's folded and was clearly kept in a safe place. California was a free state but he probably still had to show it periodically to show his stature as a free man. Alvin stayed in California until 1857, continuing to mine and work the land. He then went on to earn the $3,500 that was the price set for his wife and children. And so he worked for years to get that amount of money. At the end of that year, he returned to Missouri, but he was forced to wait more than a month to purchase the freedom of Mahela and their five children. Missouri law dictated that enslaved individuals could only be legally freed on two specific days of the year. So he waited, again. And finally, on Monday, October 26, 1857, their deeds of emancipation were recorded. The Coffees sent their two older daughters to Canada to complete their education, where they lived with Coffee's mother. She had fled there years earlier through the Underground Railroad. Then Alvin, this time with Mahela and the rest of his children by his side, made his third and final trek to California, eight years after he'd made his first journey. They settled in Red Bluff. Now, my great-grandmother, Ora, was the first black child to be born free in Red Bluff, in Shasta County area. So that was kind of a, a proud thing for her. Alvin and Mahela opened a laundry, purchased land, and earned a small fortune producing hay on their turkey farm. And they lived a full life in rural California. And there are so many things when you look at, uh, for example, letters that they've written, and the handwriting of each is so beautiful, so exact. It just shows what 
Albert was able to do in terms of getting an education for his children. An education he and Mahela had to fight for because this was a time in California's history when many public schools prohibited both Native and African-American children from attending. And he wasn't just fighting on behalf of his own children. Susan Anderson explains. In Shasta County, he and his wife ran a school for Native children and Black children. Uh, In Tehama County, he was also involved in what was called the colored school. In fact, Alvin remained an active philanthropist even into retirement. This was a time when old people's homes, day nurseries for children, all kinds of charitable institutions would not accept uh, black people. So black people built their own. And Alvin was a big contributor to one of the first black retirement homes, the Home for Aged and Infirmed Color People in Beulah, California. His philanthropy was noted by African-Americans around the state. And then it turned out, as an old man, um, in the very early 20th century, he was the first um, resident of the home. And actually, that's where he, he ended up dying. Coffey wrote an autobiography, Book of Reminiscences, which remains one of the only first-hand written accounts of a Black pioneer. And in 1887, he joined the Society of California Pioneers, the organization that now holds his manumission papers, which were a donation from Coffey's family. At the time, many of the societies founded to commemorate pioneers were made up of white property men. But because of his relationships with the people he came from Missouri with. They were some of the founders of the Society of California Pioneers, and he joined as the first African-American member. So this is partly why we have some of his testimonials. In many ways, Alvin Coffey's tale reflects the complex narratives of opportunity and progress that so often define the Golden State. His story helps bring out this untold part of the gold rush story, which was opportunity for all, is what it was believed to be. And that's why they call it the California dream. Some people thought it was going to be a great equalizer. Everyone was going to get rich. And then you come and you realize society just brings its social issues and ills with it. You know, there's no books written called The California Reality. Alvin and Mahela Coffey's story is remarkable and filled with all kinds of iconic pioneer moments. Yet, their story remains generally undertold in official California histories. Tune into our next episode, Hidden Roots, uncovering the legacies of African-American homesteaders in California to learn more about how Black people in rural California get remembered and forgotten in the stories and landmarks that tell the beginnings of the Golden State. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgments. 
We Are Not Strangers Here is a collaboration between Susan Anderson of the California African American Museum, the California Historical Society, Exhibit Envoy and Amy Cohen, myself, Dr. Caroline Collins from UC San Diego, and the Calac Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. Our traveling exhibit banners were written by Susan Anderson, our project's primary history advisor. And this podcast was written and produced by me with production help from Lucas Brady Woods. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org to learn more and the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to another coffee great-great-granddaughter, Jeanette L. Molson, who self-published an account of Alvin's life with researcher Yule D. Blancett Jr. Their text helped us tell this story.